Amen. We do praise the name of Jesus for what God has done in His name, salvation for sinners, undeserving of His kindness, and yet God in His love sent His Son to die for you and for me. And so we say, hallelujah. But it does not end there. The salvation that God has provided leads to an important purpose to which He has called each of us to continue to make this salvation known. You may have noticed in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, that God is highly involved in this interaction here. And I think it unfolds in this way because it makes clear to us that this is the purpose of God. It's God's desire to reach this Ethiopian man with the gospel. It's God's desire that we would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see God at work here. And the text will will highlight that for us in a number of ways. We'll see it as we go through. In fact, there are actually seven clear times when God steps in and intervenes, even in miraculous ways, in order to reach this man with the gospel. Indeed, we can say salvation is a miracle of God, isn't it? And you can look probably in your own life and consider how God used maybe people, but how God was the one behind the scenes reaching you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. While this text focuses on God, and we want to keep the focus there and worship and praise God for what He does in salvation, we also notice how Philip gets to just be involved in this. God sort of comes to Philip with an angel and says, well, go here. And Philip goes there. He says, okay, we'll catch up to the chariot. And Philip catches up to the chariot. He gets in and it's just, God sort of unfolds this whole thing and Philip gets to participate. And so as we see what God does, we're also going to think about how you and I participate in the saving work of God. Yes, It is God, and it's His sovereign plan, and it's His love that pursues us with the gospel. But He lets us be involved. In fact, that's why we're still here. Do you remember studying Jesus' conversation with the disciples in John chapters 13 through 17? As Jesus prepares them for His own departure, He speaks to them about what life will be like after He leaves, that they'll receive God's Spirit And there's a specific reason that Jesus gives them for receiving God's Spirit. And there's a specific purpose that God gives them through Christ. Jesus actually says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And and with the Spirit of God, Jesus' followers then can take that message of salvation in Christ to a world that needs to be saved. It's why we are here. If God has you on this earth for the year 2023, which He at least does here for day one, then I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, if Jesus is your Savior, God's purpose for you is to tell the world that Jesus is the Savior God sent. That's why you're here. That's why you exist. So let's think about how it is that we participate in the mission of God and what a wonderful way to start a new year to think about what God is doing in the earth and how we get involved in what God is doing. So our theme is this, God accomplishes his salvation to all people through faithful believers 
who share the word. Now, that seems really long, right? Uh, But there's a, a few key thoughts there. God accomplishes his salvation. It's his work, and he's sovereignly engaged. You're going to see his fingerprints all over this text. And he brings that salvation to all people. Here's this just one man on his way south to Ethiopia, which in historical terms could sort of be considered the ends of the earth of this time period in in the book of Acts. But God brings the gospel to this man. All people. Philip gets to be involved. As Philip obeys, as Philip follows the words of God, the message of God to him and does what God calls him to do, Philip gets to participate as he shares from the scriptures, from Isaiah 53, how this Ethiopian man can know salvation in Jesus Christ. It's cool. So how do we engage with the mission of God, what God is doing? Well, let's Dig into this text. Number one, we're going to see God directs the spread of the gospel to all people as we are faithful to obey. God does the directing, but we participate by obeying. We participate by obeying. In verses 26 through 28, we're going to see how God seeks out the Ethiopian, but Philip participates by obeying God's word. So in verse 26, an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and tells him to arise and go to the south along a road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert, the New King James translated. It's often called the desert road. It's a very barren area. Now pause to reflect on the context here. Do you remember where Philip has been? We first met Philip in Jerusalem. He's just an average member of the church. The only unique thing about Philip that's pointed out to us in Acts chapter 6 is that he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit like the other men who were elected to meet this need in the church, to care for the widows who were being overlooked. Remember the Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking widows in the church. And so Philip was elected to help care for this need. And that's really all we know about him. Not long after that, he traveled to Samaria preaching the gospel. And we read about that in the first part of chapter 8. Remember Simon the sorcerer who was at first sort of resistant and then wanted this power of the Spirit. So that was kind of a separate story. But all of that surrounds the fact that Philip was in Samaria preaching the gospel and doing miracles. And all sorts of people were coming to faith in Christ. So when God sends Philip to this deserted road in the south, He's asking him to leave a really successful ministry in Samaria. People are getting saved and Philip's doing miracles. And he's like, well, okay, I want you to go south. And at this point, there's no clear instruction. Are you going to plant a large church down there? You know, well, that'd be exciting at least. But no, it's just go south. And he goes to this deserted road. So, verse 27, Philip arises and goes. He heads south. And Luke is almost surprised with us in the next phrase of verse 27. And behold, a man of Ethiopia. This this desert road, there's sparse water and few people traveled it. I have a, a picture of likely where this road would have been. So, you see uh, Jerusalem right here. And Samaria is north of Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where Philip was coming from. But if he was coming from Samaria, he heads down south. And this desert road stretches from Jerusalem here 
over to the coast to the city of Gaza. And this was a very dry, arid, barren region. Not many people took that road. But that's where God tells Philip to head. And so he takes the the desert road, this deserted road, and surprise, he meets somebody. A man from Ethiopia. We learn a little bit about this man. He is from Ethiopia. And don't, don't think of the current country of Africa called Ethiopia. In Bible times, Ethiopia was a region south of Egypt, which would today be Sudan. And so here's a picture of where that might be. So think about the distance here. Here's Jerusalem and Gaza right up here towards the top. Okay, And so the city that this man was likely from, the capital of Ethiopia at that time, And remember, he serves the queen, so he's probably from the capital, was this city right down here along the Nile River. Look at that journey around the Dead Sea, through Egypt, to the south, all the way down to the city. One commentator suspected this may have taken five months to travel this far in that time period. That's something. Now, think about the timing of God here. God sends Philip to this deserted road. And as Luke writes it, it's almost like it's this random meeting. And behold, there was an Ethiopian. But God had intentions for Philip here. He knew exactly when that Ethiopian man would be traveling that road and be in the right spot for Philip to meet him. We learn more about this man. So he's from that area south of Egypt. But we learn that he was a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is a title, like Pharaoh, uh, so we don't know the specific ruler at this time, but uh, the, the queen of Ethiopia was given the title Candace. And this man was very high up in her, uh, in her court. He was over all of her money. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. And so he is, he is said to have great authority and charge of all her treasury, and he's called a eunuch. Now, this is an interesting side note here. Eunuch can mean a couple of things in Scripture. It can just mean someone with great authority, like this man who has a high position, is a trusted servant of a queen or of a king. But in Scripture, it can also mean one who has been rendered infertile, a man who has been castrated. Jesus references eunuchs in this sense in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That last phrase highlights kind of the way it's used in Scripture a lot. They were trusted men of authority under a ruler who sometimes were forced and other times willingly volunteered to be rendered infertile in order to be more trustworthy to that ruler. Okay, So this is often how things unfolded. We, we know very little more than that about this man, except that he had high position of great authority in this kingdom south of Egypt. Luke focuses on his authority through the text. He is apparently wealthy. He has a chariot that has enough space to carry a driver himself, because, of course, he's reading. He can't be driving and reading at the same time. There's no driving and texting, even in these days. And there's room for Philip to get up into the chariot with him. So it's a fairly large chariot, and he has enough money to purchase a copy of Isaiah. 
scroll of Isaiah is not like times today where you could just go pick up a copy of the Bible at your local bookstore. This is pre-printing press. So to have a hand-copied scroll of the book of Isaiah took a lot of resources, took a lot of wealth. Maybe he had just purchased it on his visit to Jerusalem to worship. And he's reading it aloud. He's also educated. The only two translations of the book of Isaiah at that time were in Hebrew or Greek. And it's likely this man from Ethiopia was not raised to speak either of those languages. And so he was well educated. It's just really interesting stuff. Before we get too far into the weeds, what this section really highlights is that this guy who had come to Jerusalem to worship was heading back to a far, far distance from Jerusalem is sought out by God. Philip is sent to connect with him. Verse 28, he's returning, sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. So we notice a number of things here. God directs the spread of the gospel, but he involves us as we are faithful to obey. God's clearly the one at work here. This is no random meeting. But Philip participates just by listening to the Word of God, doing what God has said, obeying. There's no way Philip could have planned this encounter. This happens in life from time to time. There was a group of us that helped a member of our church move in recent days. And the crew was out there working and moving around. And there were also some men from a local moving crew who were helping too. They were handling the larger items and uh, the unprofessionals uh, among the crew were uh, working with the smaller items and walking them back and forth. And at one point, one of the professionals stopped me and said something interesting to me. He said, you know, this is this is, I've never seen anything like this. Who are all these people? Why, what are you guys doing here helping this person? I said, well, we're her church family. We love her and we want to look out for her and help her, help her get moved. It's like, well, I do a lot of moves and I never see anything like this. The family and friends just disappear when the moving crew comes in. <laughs> but here you guys are helping. That's really special. That's really something. I say, well, we just try to love one another in the church. Things started shifting, and he moved off, and that was the end of the conversation. I didn't get to share the gospel with him. But what was significant was that the, the church, the people of God, right, just loving one another as God has commanded us to do, opened up an opportunity to talk to someone about God's love. And Again, it wasn't a sharing of the gospel. I don't know how God will continue to work in that man's life. I trust he will. You've often seen how bit by bit by bit, God brings the gospel to people through maybe a multiple people along the way. But the point is we never could have arranged a scenario like that. Right? You can't get a team together and say, okay, well, let's, let's help someone move so we can meet a mover so he can see our love and then we can share the gospel with him. You can't plan things like that. It happens simply when we just do what God's called us to do. God arranges the other details. So with Philip here, Philip couldn't have arranged this meeting with the Ethiopian. He just takes God at his word and does what God says. Now, of course, God doesn't speak to us in this way as he does to Philip anymore. He's given us his completed word. And so 
we have the will of God written for us here. So we don't get messages from God to go to the deserted road or things like that. But, friends, you and I can be faithful to obey the Word. Faithful to obey what God has called us to do and just kind of watch how God opens doors to interact with people. This is how He directs the spread of the gospel through our obedience. There are no chance encounters. There are no random changes of plans. There's a sovereign God behind everything. Obedience to God's Word becomes the means by which God uses us to spread the gospel. Think, think about it this way. You may have spent some time in a checkout line recently, purchasing something or returning something, as the case may be. It tends to happen frequently this time of year. And if you're like me, you found yourself in a checkout line a bit impatient with how long things are taking. Right? Maybe you had even hunted down the shortest line and expected that it would go much faster than these other lines because they have only a few items. But then the light goes on and the clerk needs help and there's an issue and things slow to a halt. <sighs> now, think about this for a moment. I have so often been in that scenario. And in my you know, busy schedule for the day, I've arranged what I think are the priorities for my life. This shopping trip is only supposed to take this long, and then I need to get to this next thing that's really important, that I've planned, that I'm sure God wants me to do, and maybe He does. But there's also a sovereign God even behind the delays, aren't there? Maybe if in that moment, in that long shopping line, I had chosen to obey the will of God. For instance, we know very clearly that thankfulness is the will of God, right? It's actually a verse in Scripture that says, and give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. <laughs> so, here I am in that line thinking that my schedule, I've got to get this thing with so many things to do. I'm a pastor. I'm a very important person. I think I'll keep my schedule. And, but in that moment, had I just been thankful, who knows how God might have used that with the clerk or the person in front of me in line or the person behind me in line or and maybe nothing would have happened, but, but the point is, it's obedience to God, what I know is His will. And so frequently, we get so controlling over the things that are out of our control. And the things that are in my control, I, I don't do. So the simplicity of just obeying God by being thankful or, or being patient or showing love or the things we know He wants us to do and let God Open the doors for the gospel as we just obey in the details of life. See, God sovereignly directs the spread of the gospel as we are faithful to obey. Notice the next section here. We're going to see that God gives believers opportunities to explain the scriptures. You see, the gospel is, is not just this cloudy idea out there. It's words. It's a message. 
And we have the truth of the gospel in the written word of God. And so often the way that God spreads the gospel is by giving believers the opportunity to explain the scriptures. And this is exactly what he does for Philip. God opens the doors wide open for Philip to explain the gospel. Notice verse 29. The Spirit says to Philip, so first it was an angel, now it's God's Spirit talking to Philip, run up or go near and overtake this chariot. Now this is, I I love speculating about these things. I have no idea what happens here exactly if the chariot just slows down or if God miraculously gives Philip extra speed or maybe the chariot was just going slow in the first place. I'm just trying to imagine this whole scene as Philip's running alongside the chariot, you know, like, what are you reading there? You know, just... I don't know how it unfolded. I wish, you know, we could see some of these things. Maybe we'll find out someday. But Philip catches up to the chariot and he overhears. He overhears the, the, uh, the Ethiopian reading. It, reading was often done aloud in that day. And Philip knows the word enough to recognize that the man is reading from Isaiah. And so he listens and says to the man in verse 30, Do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand what you're reading? It's just a simple question. Philip is no amazing apostle here. He's just a guy. And God directs him to draw close to the chariot. He hears him reading the book of Isaiah. Hey, how's it going? Do you understand what you're reading? You want to talk about it? Do you see the sovereignty of God in this? How random. It's not. How random is it that this guy is reading in the book of Isaiah when Philip runs up to him? It's not random. It's God's timing. And as we'll see in the next section, he's actually reading in Isaiah 53. Is there a better passage that he could be reading in at the time when Philip runs up to him? I mean, this is all God's timing here. So Philip gets close, asks him if he understands. And the man responds in verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asks Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip gets up in the chariot again. We don't know exactly how all this unfolded. Most likely the chariot just stopped so Philip could get in and then started going again. And Philip sits there with him and begins to explain the scriptures and helps him understand. God brings Philip to the right chariot this Ethiopian, at just the right time in order to provide someone to help him understand the Scriptures. This is God's method. He wants to use believers to teach the Scriptures to those who are unbelievers. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 makes this clear. Jesus commands, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. See, the doctrine, the word, the scriptures are are taught and explained as we help one another along in the faith. God wants us to be doing this. This is, in fact, one of the reasons that we have God's Spirit. In my Bible reading, I've been working through 1 Corinthians, and in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking with the Corinthian believers, and he says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And he goes on to explain how the natural man only understands natural things. But because we have God's Spirit, we're alive 
in Christ. We can understand spiritual things and begin to explain them to others. So God brings Philip in here to explain Isaiah to this Ethiopian man. When I worked at Faith Baptist Bible College as the dean of students, we did a competition, usually in late fall, to uh, see who could guess when the first snowfall would be and how much snow actually fell. And so some snow had fallen over a weekend, and so on a Monday I got into the office and we had to determine, well, who really won the competition here. So I thought I would get the most accurate reading possible, so I called up the local meteorologist. And he didn't answer the phone. I left a message and just said, hey, this is random. If you don't call me back, I understand you're busy, but we're doing a little competition. Could you let us know uh, what the first snowfall was and how much we got? And so I'm sort of thinking, well, this shouldn't take him that long. He can call back and said, yep, it came on Saturday and we got three inches. Click. Well, I got a voicemail later that day. I also missed his return call. And I think it's the longest voicemail I've ever gotten on my phone. Because this very detailed meteorologist went through all the possibilities of how this could be interpreted, right? So he began to explain how the weather pattern hit in the north first. And so snow first began falling uh, to the north side of Des Moines in this region. And they saw about 2.25 inches. And then it moved south. And then the snow picked up a little bit. So central Des Moines saw 3 inches. But then as it moved further south, it kind of began to dissipate. And so this region saw this. And he went on and on and on explaining how the weather patterns were. It's actually really interesting voicemail. But I came at the end of it, and I felt like I really didn't have an answer to my question. (laughs) And the bottom line is, he's right. It's a complicated question, isn't it? If you know all the details, like, well, actually, it's hard to say definitively when it started and how much fell. And so I kind of took an average of a couple of the regions and said, oh, yeah, it was Saturday, and it was this much snow, right? Why, why was it so detailed and so at length? Because he knew far more about it than I did. And he was right. And all of his information was helpful and accurate. And because he knew far more about it, he was able to explain to me, through a voicemail, how it all worked. What an opportunity we have as believers to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, to know how to be saved from our sins, to be able to explain from the Scriptures to others, how they can be saved. What we see in Philip here is, I think, just the fact that he knows the Word. Again, he's not an apostle. He's not one that spends a ton of time with Jesus like the other apostles, as far as we know. And yet, he recognizes the book of Isaiah being read aloud and is ready to begin talking about it. Hey, do you understand? Can Can I help you? I wonder if you and I would recognize Isaiah being read aloud if we were to encounter that on a local bus or train or something or in an Uber. Would we recognize it? Would, would we have the confidence to say, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Could I, could I help you? Could I explain it to you? you see, it's important that we are a people who know the Scriptures because the Bible is actually a widespread book. People read it. And they have questions, and they want to know what this means and what that means. And so it's a good challenge for us to be a people who know the Word, who get in the Scriptures, who study it, so that if a situation like this with Philip comes up, you and I might be ready to say, oh, that's Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? I'd love to help you.
So I encourage you as you head into 2023, get back into your Bible reading. But not just reading, maybe to study it, to increase your understanding. I encourage you to come out to our classes every Wednesday night, teaching on the Word of God to help us all grow in our understanding of the Scriptures that we might be ready to talk with others about what the Word means. We'll see number three today, that God opens doors to preach Jesus from the Word. He's not just explaining Scripture here, but Philip is specifically preaching Jesus. And God just opens the floodgates wide open for Philip to do this. I love this because Philip doesn't have some like really creative way to get to the gospel here. You know, sometimes we think in evangelism, it's like, well, I just don't know how to, how to, you know, move the conversation to Jesus. And there, sure, there can be some help in thinking through how to do that. But it's all God here. Notice verse 32. The place in the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. This is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. I had to look it up, okay? Unlike Philip. And so, this passage in Isaiah 53, which, if you're familiar with it, is one of the key texts in the Old Testament predicting what the Messiah will do to save God's people from their sins. That this servant of God will suffer bearing the sins of the people. Again, is it random that the Ethiopian man is reading from this passage as Philip approaches? No. God has this all planned out. And so the doors are thrown wide open for Philip to begin explaining the gospel to this man from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, we could get into the details of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. You see them there in verses 32 and 33 and he uses the metaphor of a sheep, the way Jesus was quiet, was silent. He did not revile, he did not speak back on his way to the cross, but was submitted to the Father's plan. In verse 33, we see it was a humiliating act of injustice upon the Lord Jesus Christ when his life was taken away from the earth. Now, there are many no, a number of other details we could study in those two verses, but I want to focus on the Ethiopian man's question in verse 34. He's actually asking what I think is the most important question. Who is this talking about? He says, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Now, remember, the Ethiopian man had just been to Jerusalem to worship we don't know how all this unfolded, but maybe he'd purchased the scroll while he was there. Maybe he heard some teaching on Isaiah. I don't know, but something maybe triggered his thinking or his curiosity. There were three common teachings in this time and even still today about Isaiah 53 in Judaism as opposed to Christianity. In Judaism, it's taught that either this is Isaiah speaking of himself that it's some other prophet or man in Israel's history who, who suffered, or a third interpretation is that it could be Israel itself suffering at the hands of others. 
And so those are three common interpretations. And so the man wants to know Philip's take on this passage. Well, what do you think, Philip? Who is this? He's already narrowed it down. He doesn't think that it's Israel. He thinks it's either Isaiah or someone else. And so Philip begins to explain. I wonder, how would you or I answer that question if we were asked it of Isaiah 53? Well, if you were to look in the context of Isaiah, we do have some clues. Could it be Isaiah the prophet himself? Well, there in Isaiah 53, we read in verse 10 that this servant was made an offering for sin. While Isaiah did suffer, he was never made an offering for sin. Furthermore, it says that this servant would justify many by bearing their iniquities in Isaiah 53, 11. Again, though Isaiah did suffer, he never justified anyone through his suffering. Furthermore, we know it can't be Israel. Though this is a common Jewish interpretation, the context of the book of Isaiah really squelches this one. Back in chapter 44, verse 1, Israel is referred to as my servant, the servant of the Lord. But there's something that happens between Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 53. In chapter 49, God introduces an individual person named my servant who will come to save or help or regather Israel. And so at that point in Isaiah, there's a distinguishing between Israel and my servant. And so that distinction from Isaiah 49 on continues into chapter 53, where this, my servant who will regather Israel, becomes the one who will suffer for the sins of Israel. In fact, all through chapter 53, the words we and our are referring to the people of Israel. He bore our sins. And so it becomes clear this is not Isaiah This is not Israel. This must be someone else. And so Philip answers the question. We don't know if it's just like that or not, but he at least answers the question and begins preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, that the servant of Isaiah 53 is Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to bear the sins of his people and justify many by his death and resurrection. Philip apparently went to other scriptures as well, as verse 35 hints at. He opened his mouth and beginning, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him, maybe going elsewhere as well. It would have been interesting, surely, to hear Philip's presentation of the gospel to this Ethiopian man. But he preaches Jesus, salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of that, God is the one who clearly opens the door. And yet, Philip was ready. God does open the doors for us in sharing the gospel. It's the way He works. The question is, are we ready to share Jesus with others? Ready to talk to them about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done? I wonder if you or I were in this scenario, we were asked a question about Scripture, how might we make a beeline to Jesus and begin preaching Christ to them? All of the scriptures point to our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first five books of the Old Testament, the the law, the Pentateuch as it's often called, point to our sin and our need for a Savior. You get into the historical books where there's failing king after failing king and they point to our need for a true righteous king. 
You get into the prophets and so on and so forth. You, we could go on and ask that question, how would I make a beeline to Jesus? How would I share the gospel with this person? An important question here is, do I know the gospel? Sure, I have believed it. I've trusted in Christ as my Savior, but could I articulate to someone else how they could become a Christian? What do they need to do? Has the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? How would you answer that question? And we have resources that can help with that. We have Bible studies that walk through the truths of the gospel with somebody else and encourage you to take advantage of those. But it's important. Do we know the truths of the gospel? We come to the final section here and we see that God is still at work. Number four, God equips us to walk in new life. In this section, the the Ethiopian man believes in Christ and he's ready to take the next step, which is baptism. And God, again, provides. I mean, we could say randomly, but it's obviously not. A body of water right there at the right time so this man can be baptized. (laughs) God helps the man even take the first steps of the Christian life. And he directs Philip on his next steps in the Christian life as well. So in verse 36, they go down the road and they come to some water. And apparently Philip's instruction has already been pretty comprehensive. He's covered the idea of baptism. Or maybe the eunuch had come across it somewhere else. I don't know. But he knows the first step after trusting in Christ as Savior is to declare it publicly by being baptized. And so he sees some kind of body of water. We don't know exactly where they were or what body of water this was. But they come to some body of water and he says, hey, well, why, why should I not be baptized right now? To show outwardly what I have done inwardly. To declare publicly that I have trusted in Christ. Now, verse 37 is interesting. In fact, some of your Bible translations may not even have a verse 37. It's because it's not in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. It's, it's not there. And I think it's likely that Luke, at least, did not write verse 37. Probably wasn't there. It's was probably added later, by, not long after, by some who thought, you know, it, we should make it clear that the Ethiopian man believed in Jesus. And so it may even accurately reflect what happened between the Ethiopian man and Philip. We just don't know for sure. But like I said, it's probably not in the original. So we go to verse 38. And the Ethiopian man commands the chariot to stand still, to stop. And they leave, they go down into the water, and Philip baptizes him. They come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord takes Philip away. I mean, it's just God is directing the scene. He's like, all right, Philip, you did your work here, I have another job for you. And all of a sudden, Philip appears in another spot. And the Ethiopian man goes on his way rejoicing, as we see at the end of verse 39. A few things to glean from this section. Now, we notice a few things about baptism here, which is helpful to us. Certainly on a journey this long, the Ethiopian man would have had water in his chariots to drink, which could have been used to sprinkle. But this text reminds us that the true message, the true mode of baptism, which communicates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is baptism by immersion. And it's not until God provides a body of water that the Ethiopian man says, ah, now I could be baptized, and they go down into the water, immersed, 
comes back up again. It's a neat picture, a reminder of what true baptism is. Baptism by immersion for someone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ and is ready to publicly declare what they have done inwardly. Now that he's believed, he's ready to be baptized. There are some irregularities here as well. Normally, we would see baptism by immersion in a local church, a body of believers participating in it together. One individual declaring to their brothers and sisters in Christ that they want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're taking this first step of obedience. And we see it in that way through much of the New Testament. So why is this one out in the middle of nowhere? Well, because it's kind of an irregular scenario to begin with, I think. God sent Philip to this place south of Israel. We don't even know exactly where they were. There's no church there at this point. The only church is in Jerusalem at this point. There's no church in Ethiopia where the man will be going. They're just there by themselves. And so more important that he be baptized in the right way by immersion and get on his way than to try to go back to Jerusalem or figure something out like that. And so it's a wonderful scene. The Ethiopian man comes up from the water and he's filled with joy. I think that's significant in light of who he is, a man with great wealth and authority who can travel and he's studying the scriptures, but now he's found joy in a relationship with Jesus Christ and a life ready to be lived for God. We learn that God moves Philip to Azotus. And uh, so just to go back to our map, The city of Gaza is down here at the bottom, and we don't know where they were on this desert road uh, somewhere along here, but Azotus is right here along the coast, almost straight west of Jerusalem, about 20 miles north of Gaza. And so that's where Philip reappears, and God's Spirit just moves him there. Hey, here's your next place to keep preaching the gospel. And we're told that Philip works his way up along the coast, All the way to the north here, Caesarea, preaching in the cities along the way. We know at least of the city of Joppa, maybe other cities along the way where Philip may have preached the gospel. What's key is that God has equipped both of them to take the next step in the Christian life. For the Ethiopian man, the next step was baptism, and boom, there's water. God provided so he could be baptized. The next step for Philip was to keep preaching, and God moves him right to that spot. You see, God equips us to take that next step, whatever it might be. So what we learn here is that we need to then live the Word, trusting that God equips us to obey. It might begin here. Maybe you're in a position similar to the Ethiopian man, curious about the Scriptures and about God, It's time for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step is baptism after salvation. Maybe you were baptized as a child, as a young age, and it's time to say, well, I I need to be baptized by immersion. After my faith in Christ, represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and declare to my brothers and sisters in Christ that I am ready to follow Jesus. Jesus. Maybe your next step is just something in the Christian life that you know is the will of God, some area of obedience, some area of submission to His will. Not in the mysterious things, but the clear things like 
being thankful, like repenting of sin, like sexual purity, like honesty, like not worrying and praying and rejoicing in the Lord always. I mean, these, these are the things we know God wants us to do. And so maybe the next step becomes growing in those acts of obedience to the one who gave his life for me. God is the one who accomplishes his salvation. And he does it through us. He involves us. And we are privileged to be used by God. As we come away from this text, I want to be sure we highlight what the text highlights, and that's the incredible, sovereign love of God. He loves all people groups, (laughs) no matter your background, your skin color, your status, your language, no matter your physical beauty or deformity, no matter your past, no matter your brokenness, no matter what you may have done to your own body, and I think even of this Ethiopian man as a eunuch. See the love of God that pursues him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See the love of God that pursued you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even now, the fact that you are hearing this message on this day is not by chance. A sovereign God orchestrates the details of your life in order to bring us to salvation. So my question for you is, why, in God's sovereign plan, are you hearing this message today? Maybe it's because God is leading you to faith in Christ, and you could start this new year by trusting in the one who died for you and rose again. Oh, would you believe in Jesus as Savior today? What a way to start the new year. Maybe in God's sovereign plan, you're hearing this message today because God wants you to take the next step in your walk with Him. As we look back through these things that God does, there are some applications. And so I have four phrases that summarize each point, kind of looking at Philip's side of things, the ways we can participate. Again, it's not the primary focus of the text but some good application for us as we sort of learn from what Philip did here. Number one, because God directs the spread of the gospel to all people as we are faithful to obey, obey the word. Obey the word. Number two, know the word. Because God gives opportunities to explain the scriptures. Know the word. Number three, share the word. Because God opens doors to preach Jesus from the Scriptures. So be ready to share the Word. And number four, live the Word. Because God equips us to walk in the new life, be ready to take that next step. Father, we thank You so much for this encouraging passage. As we start this new year May we focus on your love, your incredible love, which has pursued us by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you draw us to faith in Jesus. And then you open the doors wide open for the gospel message, the truth of your word, that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and that we who trust in him are forgiven of our sins, given your righteousness, given peace with you, and justified forevermore. We thank you for the truths of the gospel, and I would pray even now 
those that you have sovereignly brought under your word here today in this room or online, that they would consider your will for them to trust in Christ by believing and by taking the next step. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.